My name's Clover, and we need to talk about eco-anxiety. Some of you may be wondering what eco-anxiety even is, while others may be struggling with it right now. This podcast is for both of you. For those curious listeners who want to understand the impacts of climate change on our mental health, this podcast is your crash course. Each week on the show, we'll be exploring a different face of the climate crisis, from the food we eat, to our relationship with media, our addiction to fossil fuels, and everything in between. I'll be speaking to leading experts and global companies about challenges and solutions. You'll also hear from young people around the world who feel eco-anxious, and hear from our resident psychotherapist, Caroline Hickman, about how to navigate some of these feelings. And for those of you who feel eco-anxious right now, I'm here to tell you that you are not alone. And far from being a sign of weakness, your eco-anxiety is totally normal. In fact, it's a sign of your empathy, proof that you are awake to the issues. I believe that talking about our eco-anxiety is the first step to turning it into agency, community, and vision. So let's talk about eco-anxiety. On the previous episode, we dive deep into waste and consumerism, featuring Shilpi Chotre, Director of Communications at Break Free From Plastic, and Latar, Senior Vice President at P&G, who oversees brands like Head & Shoulders, Aussie, and Herbal Essences. If you haven't already, be sure to check it out right after today's episode. Today, we're diving into politics, AKA one of the most loaded words. There are times when I've been inspired by politics, like when Bernie Sanders ran for office in 2016 and again in 2020, or when I watch AOC roast some Trump supporter in Congress. But there are many more moments when I feel disillusioned, like when I go to the polls to choose between a climate change denier and a seasoned procrastinator, or when I think about the vested interests in climate politics. At 16, I borrowed a slightly too big power suit and traveled to Paris for COP21, the UN's climate change conference. I went in with starry-eyed optimism that world leaders would come together to solve this overwhelming existential threat. Instead, I met calcified leaders in admittedly better fitting suits who made empty promises, targets scheduled far enough into the future that they required no immediate action. I attended sustainability farms sponsored by the likes of BMW, Coca-Cola, and Shell, billion dollar corporate giants and iconic polluters. It was like attending a conference on lung cancer sponsored by Philip Morris. We are divided in a way many of us have never seen before fueled by the social media platforms I grew up on. Increasingly, authoritarian regimes are seizing more power in many parts of the world, and their insistence on putting corporate interests above humanity fills me with dread. But is it not too late to use politics as a uniting force? A force that educates, inspires, and galvanizes people to take action against the single greatest threat facing us all. To help me approach this question, I will be speaking to Jeremy Oppenheim, co-founder of Systemic, which he set up in 2016 to drive the implementation of the Paris Agreement and UN Sustainable Development Goals. As always, you'll hear from young people around the world who are navigating their eco-anxiety and from Caroline Hickman on the meaning of these 
these feelings. But before we dive into all of that, I reached out to the most politically active person I know, Colom Kayan Salvador. Colom launched a movement to mobilize people beyond national borders to solve global problems. This movement is running for elections, campaigning for change, and tackling polarization. Colom, take it away. I'm Colombe, I'm 26, and I'm working on a few transnational initiatives. What was your catalyst for starting a political party? So it was actually Brexit. Brexit really struck a chord with me. Also, at the same time in France, there was a very strong anti-EU sentiment being built up, and the far right was becoming more prominent and so on. So there were similar trends that we saw across Europe that were happening. How was your vision met with reality? I'm young, I'm a woman, and I have all sorts of privilege. I'm white, I live in wealthy countries, and so on. But still, when you look at the political spectrum, it doesn't look like me. And as such, the amount of pushback you get is insane. Do you feel that there is a vested interest in ensuring that people aren't engaged, in not making it easier for people to stand up and actually engage in the policies that are defining our lives? Yeah, 100%. You know, you have an age requirement. You can't run before like 35 to become the US president, which is crazy to so many extent. And I was like, why don't you have an age limit? How come you can run when you're 80, but you can't run when you're 20? It's ridiculous. Obviously, the younger generation as a result is not represented in politics. And it's not true that someone who's older can properly represent the youth. I think it's the same with any minority you're looking at. And by minority, I mean, it's no broad way, whether it's young people, women, people of color, LGBTIQ+, anyone that is not basically, at least in the Western world, white old men. And there's a vested interest because if more people like us get into power, they will have a bit less power. But I think this is what needs to be challenged. What is your invitation for people to challenge that really disempowering narrative and to challenge the idea that we're too small to make a difference? Everyone one has to try to engage to some extent. We're seeing that there's a total lack of action when it comes to climate, so we don't have a choice. People have a power. One, you have a power to vote in a lot of countries, not in every country, and to elect politicians and hold them to account for their promises. But second, if the system doesn't work, then you should try to change the system. And I'm not saying it's easy, but if it's not working for you and if it's not working for your community, then whatever choice you have but to try to change it and to push the world in the right direction. I mean, just look at history. If you look at different struggles that took place, any social society shifting events that took place, it wasn't easy. It looked impossible until it was done. And it always looks impossible until it's done. Like, you know, the nonviolent resistance of Gandhi or the anti-apartheid movement in South Africa or the women's rights movement or, or the suffragette movement. People face similar blockages than the ones we're facing today. Vetted interests, systems that are not working, a lack of representation and the lack of willingness to change. It's exactly the same. And it looked impossible and it was extremely complicated. But every single voice was needed to move the needle. And I think that's the truth today. And I think that's also something we tend to forget. We tend to think that we have to have the perfect way ahead. We just need to try and from a variety of different points with different opinions and different views and different solutions, because that's not one solution to the climate crisis. When it comes to solving an enormous existential threat like climate change, why is it so important that we shift to an international view? If one country does great, good. But that's not enough. And for this, we need coordinated actions across the world. Look, the Paris Agreement and all of those things are great in the sense that we showed that theoretically we should be moving forward as one, that we need to have certain pledges and we need to respect them together. But the truth is then it happens within a nation state, right? Like it's for nations to ratify, it's for nations to create their plans around it, etc. So the truth is climate is a very long-term problem that we need to deal with fast, but that we will need to keep having coordinated 
calculated and drastic actions over the next decades. And governments don't last decades. And because governments know it will happen over the next decades, they often shy away from it, just not to have to deal with it. I think if you go towards a more supranational approach, it's a different ballgame because you can actually look at the long-term interest of humankind and of the planet beyond a simple electoral timetable at the national level. And you can see that it does matter for the whole world to move together, or at least for the biggest polluters to move together as one. When you're working with politicians who feel that we have the luxury of time or default to that national interest of, well, my country will be fine. How do you actually impress upon them the urgency of this threat? I think climate will not be on top of the agenda of many politicians because their electorate will care more about what they see as an immediate threat to their life, not having a, an income a lot of the time and so on. A way of solving it is by showing that it's actually already having consequences. Obviously, it's having consequences if you look, for example, at the African continent uh, when it comes to food and agriculture and so on. But it's also having consequences in a lot of the countries that are wealthier and pretend that it's not having consequences in. So I was told, for example, by an electrician in Italy that every year in the south of Italy in the summer, the number of degrees that are going up is so high that now you have to install ACs for all the people. Otherwise, their lives would be put at risk in the summer. Or that, for example, the telephone lines that you install in a country, those that are not underground because of the force of the wind that has become more extreme, won't work anymore, which has a direct impact on health and emergency services in a lot of places because you can't contact your emergency services if you're sick, etc. The climate crisis is already impacting our physical health directly. So there have been countless studies even in very wealthy countries of, for example, pregnant women, their babies and, and their own health being impacted by pollution. It's having a lot of consequences. And this is when people might not directly attribute it to climate change, but by raising awareness about it, politicians will be forced to see, well, actually, you know, this is not happening down the line. This is already impacting a part of my electorate. So I have to take care of it. I think there's a lack of honesty in general and honestly on both sides. So if you look at people who are at the forefront of fighting against climate change, a lot of the rhetoric you hear cannot appeal to the broader public because it's saying, yes, we need to pass drastic measures to stop the climate crisis and so on. And we agree on this, but I think a lot of the time people's needs are diminished or not taken into account. It will kill a lot of jobs. On the long term, a lot of jobs will be created. It's going to take decades. But on the short term, a lot of people will suffer from it. In the meanwhile, we need economic programs in place so that those people don't fall behind, who are already often the people that are left behind by society. But it's about being truthful. And from this moment on, the other side that denies the climate realities will not be able to play this card anymore. Do you think that the aging population makes it less likely that an issue like the climate crisis will actually make its way on? to political party manifestos. On issues such as climate rights, for us, it's always been quite easy to mobilize people under the age of 32, 33, and above the age of like 65. In between, it's been really hard. It's for a variety of reasons. I think people in between often have young families and they're working full time, so they have less time to engage in political discussions, in activist discussions, and do some of the work. But I think there's also the element that when you're younger, you see for the rest of your life how those policies are going to impact you. And when you're older, in a way, you kind of maybe have the time time to reflect back and be like, okay, so I lived all of those years until now. And what kind of world am I living behind? I think a lot of older folks are interested in supporting their grandchildren or people they see on the street or people they meet at the supermarket in actually creating a better and fairer world. And they have often more time to do it, more life experience, a lot of advice to share and less pressure from day-to-day -day life. Is eco-anxiety something that you can relate to in terms of fear and stress and anger about the climate crisis and specifically inaction in the face of it? 
Yes, 100%. Most of my personal friends didn't engage with the political initiative I launched. And with this climate initiative, a lot of them engaged. And I was trying to understand the shift in mindset. And it told me, well, you know, I try to stay away a lot from the climate topic. And I know it's not the right thing to do, but it really stresses me out. A lot of people would tell me, I feel super powerless. You know, I go to a few marches, I recycle, you know, like I vote accordingly, but I don't see any change and I don't see how I can have an impact and I don't see a solution. Obviously, there's a hundred thousand things we can do. There's a hundred thousand individual actions you can take that will make the world a better place when it comes to the climate. And there's some public actions, but they were like, we don't find that they're actually useful a lot of the time. It's really stressful not to know what to do when you know that this will change the world and the face of the world as we know it. And you don't know how to solve this topic. Obviously, it's going to be a public health crisis. I mean, you see the number of people that are more depressed in the younger generation than the older one. I think there was a study in the US recently that showed that the younger generation is more prone to depression than any generation before, or at least in the last few decades. I don't want to misquote the study. But clearly, there's an issue with the fact that, you know, the future of the world doesn't look great unless we change something. But how can you expect young people to be healthy individuals, to have a good mental health when you look at the world around you and you're like, well, it's really not going the right direction. My future is not guaranteed. My children's future is not guaranteed. And so many vested interests exist that I don't know where to start from. So this is when I think everyone, activists, businesses, politicians, artists, everyone needs to find ways to try to tackle this in a more systematic manner because individual action matter but for me policy change and drastic system change that needed to change this and for me this is what we should be moving towards in general it's not necessarily the UN Security Council that as I said is highly undemocratic it could be an alternate form of global governance but that is capable of dealing with global topics in a systematic manner so that it doesn't feel like every single individual action is a drop in the water where you don't know where it's going but that people can actually look to a certain body a certain system and be like okay you are responsible for this so I'm going to target you now and I'm going to work with you or against you or whichever way you want to to make sure that we impact change. Listening to Kalam, I really resonated with how easy it is to feel overwhelmed when you don't see where you can have the biggest impact or when you don't see any progress around you at all. I want to hear if other young people feel similarly disillusioned by climate politics. So I put a call out to people around the world. Here is what they had to say. My name is Lauren Lagrange. I am from Johannesburg in South Africa and I'm 23 years old. Climate change makes me feel anxious and very hopeless and helpless in a way because I'm only one individual. Politicians are the people with the most power and the people who can actually make change, but more often than not, it falls to empty hands and false promises. Politicians are ruining the earth and then expecting our generation, the next generation, to deal with this matter. So yeah, well, politics is very frustrating to me. I'm Phoebe Hansen, I'm from Blackpool in the UK, and I'm 24 years old. Climate change, it makes me feel anxious. Every time we get a day that's a little bit warmer, it's out of the norm, we get a warmer day, or we get a colder day, we get a storm. It triggers an anxiety in me, and I, yeah, I just feel, I feel really anxious about it, and I feel often overwhelmed by the issue. But I didn't realise that this was a very common thing that lots of people were feeling, and it's got a name. I'd say that I've become very disenfranchised with my national government. I live in the UK, and I can't trust them to support the climate crisis in the urgency and at the level that it needs to be addressed. 
you feel like your political party, your nation's government, the people in charge of the world as well, just aren't doing enough to support it. And that just makes you feel hopeless and powerless and like you genuinely can't make a difference. My name is Sean Foley. I'm 24 years old and I live in the eastern half of the United States. The climate crisis has at times made me feel anxious, but at this point in my life, I think the primary emotions I experience are a kind of defeated sadness coupled with this just fury, this red-hot anger at the people who chose this course for the rest of us. My relationship with politics is unfortunately fairly distant. I vote, but I dream of something so much greater. Genuine democracy where me and the rest of the people of my country directly determine the way our society conducts itself. Politics probably makes me more eco-anxious than any other aspect of the crisis. Recognizing how over generations, the people who are willing to sacrifice the world for their own short-term profit have controlled the superstructure that we supposedly built to express the interests of the people and have controlled the way that information is broadcast to people, the way that the military and police are used, makes the problem feel intractable. It makes me feel hopeless and certainly anxious. We've just heard from young people who feel defeated that the people in charge aren't acting with the urgency that this crisis requires. I want to figure out how to navigate some of these difficult feelings, so I've reached out to my friend Caroline Hickman to unpack what we've just heard. For young people, environmental destruction degradation was not the root cause of their eco-anxiety. Yes, of course they're anxious about environmental destruction, but what was infinitely more damaging and destructive was the failure of adults to act. People in positions of leadership who have power. And I think particularly if you're a child or you're a young person, there is this expectation that these adults that occupy these positions, who are elected, who are paid to occupy that position, should act in the best interests of the population. Because if you like, politicians are simply an extension of our parents. We think of them as being the parents of the country. And when children are traumatized or neglected or abused in families, most of the time the adults, the parents, will say, we love you, we care about you, whilst neglecting and abusing the children. What you end up with is a real confusion in that person about what is love and what is hate and what is good and what is bad. Because these are the people who love me who are hurting me. So psychologically, what do we do to survive that? We can shut down, we can split, we can become disillusioned, disenfranchised. But I was hearing more than disenfranchisement, a dissociation in what some of these young people were saying. A numbness, an emotional numbness, a helplessness. This is devastating for me to hear because this is the giving up on relationship, not just on oneself, but giving up on the other, because the other has repeatedly failed you, repeatedly betrayed your trust, repeatedly abandoned you. This is abuse. And there's nothing worse than having your feelings disallowed. Chris Robertson, the Climate Psychology Alliance, taught me to think about it's the feelings about the feelings that are crucial. So we feel anxious, and then we get anxious and distressed about our anxiety, or we get depressed, and then we get depressed and self-critical about our depression. And what we're dependent on there is the eyes of the other person. And this is why we need friends. This is why we need colleagues. So we say to people, this is how I feel. And we need them to say back to us, yeah, that makes perfect sense. So when we're saying, this is how I feel to politicians, and they're saying, well, you shouldn't feel that way. You're stupid. 
go back to school. Then you've got this massive cruelty of leaving you with the feelings and telling you you shouldn't feel that way when they've got the power to actually do something about this. So it is a form of coercive control. It is a version of emotional abuse, that disallowing of young people's feelings about this. If they're saying children are too emotional, children are feeling too much, you could equally argue that adults are feeling too little. And instead of asking children to feel less, we should ask adults to feel more. And if adults were feeling more, then the children would not have to be left feeling these things on behalf of the adults. So the way to reduce eco-anxiety in children is to increase it in adults. These politicians, adults, need to grow up. They need to psychologically mature. What I find really interesting is this idea that young people don't just feel hopeless in response to the climate and ecological crisis, but the fact that we've been raised to place our faith in institutions that have failed us. I'd like to speak to someone who has a window into how politics needs to change at the institutional level. So I reached out to a friend, Jeremy Oppenheim, who co-founded Systemic, a think tank and consultancy pushing for systems level change. Here's the DL on Systemic. Systemic was set up in 2016, and today is a team of over 250 professionals from across the UK, Germany, the Netherlands, Indonesia, and Brazil. They started out to bring business, institutions, and governments around the same table to drive the implementation of the Paris Agreement and the UN Sustainable Development Goals. Their mission is to create an economy that is regenerative, circular, just, and resilient. They focus on the transformation of four economic systems, energy, nature, materials, and sustainable finance. One of its most ambitious goals to date is to make seven 70% of agriculture in Europe regenerative by 2030. Rather than focus on individual companies, Systemic takes a coalition and partnership-based approach to ensure that the right people are in the room. This includes working closely with civil society, academia, and finance. Its distinctive approach combines cutting-edge analysis with practical advice, policy insights, and scaling solutions that work both locally and globally. My name is Jeremy Oppenheim, and what I do is I try to make the topic of climate change a solvable problem. More than that, I have a point of view, which is that if we can get our act together to solve climate, it will be humanity's finest hour. It does represent more than solving a technical problem because it's a civilizational moment of learning and discovery and creativity and reinvention. And that's what inspires me to do what I do. From your perspective, what is at the root of this crisis? The root of the crisis is is that we have built a very successful economy and political system around that economy over the last 50 or 100 years. And I say that recognizing that there are all sorts of things that are still problems. I'm going to make an observation. We'll not at any point gloss over the fact that we live in a deeply unequal age or that there are immense challenges that we have to fix. But for many people across the world, the last 50 years have been astonishing. I and mean, we have lifted billions of people out of poverty, people living longer than ever. The growth of the human population and the fact that many, many people are living longer is an astonishingly successful economic and actually political performance. There's never been a better 50 years in the history of humankind. So you can come up with all the other arguments that were irremediably short term, that we are politically stuck, we are broken as a society. There are many other problems, right? But the fundamental reason that we are where we are is because we're the victims of our own success. And had the system been unsuccessful, 
in creating this tremendous increase in aggregate human well-being, then we would be looking to take the system apart and rebuild it and do all the things that one does when systems are fundamentally broken. But for most people across the planet, and I do mean most, not all, but most, they've actually never had it so good. And so it's really hard to build the political consensus that under the surface of that success is a deep, if you will, and chronic problem. And the problem is at the intersection, as we know, of climate and inequality and capitalism and the way in which it all functions. And the solutions to that problem are immensely difficult to grip. How do we reimagine our political system to be able to deal with these crises? That is at the heart of what we need to do. And I don't know whether we're reinventing them or rejuvenating democracy and better, if you will, institutions is going to help us make these longer term decisions. And clearly, we have a political system here, which still, in my view, has things like the House of Lords and all that other stuff, which is past its sell by date. I do believe that using not just citizen assembly mechanisms as a bit of window dressing and a bit of consultation, but as a much deeper way of re-engaging people in the life of their country. I mean, for me, the heart of this is perhaps less about political institutions and more about becoming citizens again. When we act as citizens, therefore we have a circle of empathy that extends beyond ourselves. We have a frame of reference for choices that we make in our own life, but also the intersection of that life with the community and not just narrow, but the layers of community within which we operate. Then we give ourselves a running chance at solving these problems. We have all the technological progress that we can possibly imagine, but the virtue of an expanded, informed citizenry working through different forms of collective decision-making and being held to account seem to be evergreen to me. Have you experienced eco-anxiety? And in those moments, potentially, of disillusionment or feelings of powerlessness, if that is something you can in fact relate to, how have you maintained this really contagious <laughs> enthusiasm and determination that you do hold about the change that is possible and making the climate crisis a solvable problem? I come more from the perspective of social justice than I do from the perspective of eco-anxiety. A most influential moment, my awakening moment, if you will, was when I was 18, and this is in 1980. I read a newspaper article about how six million kids had died in East Africa over the previous few years as a result of famine and hunger. And the article was profound because it had a second paragraph. And what it said is that that's not why the kids had died. And the reason that they had died is that we stood by and we turned a blind eye. There's no such thing as being an innocent bystander. We know that there is a real threat to our civilization that results symptomatically in a way from climate change. But the deeper threat is that we don't find the voice, agency and collective action potential to work on this. Probably my way of dealing and maybe even my way of denying the eco-anxiety and kind of holding it at bay is to go, look, maybe at this point in the life of our civilization, we need a challenge like climate to wake us up 
and to get us out of our complacency and to understand what it means to be mutually dependent. And COVID's done a little bit of that, but it's clear we're in kindergarten on properly understanding what it means to be in this together. And so the task of the next 10, 20 years, it's not 12 months, this is the marathon. So think about it as our climate odyssey, right? And we're going to go on this journey and it's going to be the most amazing journey because we're going to not just embrace new technologies and ways of doing things, but we're going to embrace new ways of being and new learning and new relationships that never existed before, that will cross generations, that will cross divides that hitherto seemed more important than what brings us together. And so that's the opportunity that climate offers us is to reframe in such a deep way that it becomes the moment where we take our society to the next level. And that's our job, and it's certainly how I hold mine. Do I acknowledge that eco-anxiety is is an important motivator for many and that that eco-anxiety may actually sharpen and become more acute over the years to come? I do, and everybody will have to have their own way of, if you will, responding to it. But I think if you, Clover, and what you're doing with Force of Nature can acknowledge it, not run away from that anxiety, but challenge in ways that for each individual allow them to go from anxiety to agency, then there's something that you have uniquely powerful within your hands. If we look through a human-centric economic lens, I do agree with Jeremy that the last 50 years have been some of the most successful for our civilization. Yet, I also see the world through the lens of nature, biodiversity, mental health and spirituality. And through all of those metrics, I see us going backwards. That includes a short-term political system which, to Colomb's point, has not been geared to respond to long-term global threats like a pandemic or climate change. The thought of reinventing politics is overwhelming. I feel disillusioned going to the polls, let alone trying to change the engine of capitalism and vested interests behind them. And perhaps it's this, looking to the institutions that govern our lives, that makes me the most eco-anxious. Caroline spoke to this idea that eco-anxiety doesn't just stem from environmental destruction or social injustice, but perceived inaction in response to them. We are raised to place our faith in institutions like the government, to believe that people in power are there to look after us, yet we don't see action or the urgency required, and it's hard to know who to believe. What is a genuine commitment versus an empty promise made to win hearts and an election? It can feel like performing mental gymnastics. Something interesting that Caroline said is that the way to reduce eco-anxiety, particularly in young people, is to increase it in adults. Perhaps if we see eco-anxiety in more adults, more people in power who are awake to the crisis, we might feel more seen and less despairing that we're alone in our angst. On the macro level, I agree with Colomb that we need a supernational approach that allows us to look beyond national agendas to the future of humanity. And on the personal one, perhaps one of the most effective ways to combat our eco-anxiety is to become active citizens. Both Jeremy and Sean spoke to re-engaging people in the life of their country, planting the seeds for a true democracy where people don't passively go to the polls, but have true agency to determine how we conduct ourselves and make the decisions that will govern our lives. When you think about politics, how do you feel? Inspired, engaged, or disillusioned? Now, imagine one billion people felt the same way you do right now. Does that visual fill you with hope? 
for the future or despair. If it's the first one, keep going. But if it's the latter, this might just be the perfect opportunity to challenge yourself. I've come to believe that the powers that be want us to disengage. They want us to shut down and not fight back. Yet choosing our agency, choosing to participate, no matter how broken or corrupt the system, is the only path there is to change it. So let's take back that power. Next week on the show, we will be discussing nature and extinction. We have some very powerful conversations lined up. You'll hear from Ashwarya Sridhar, trailblazing conservationist, photographer, filmmaker, and presenter. And you'll also hear from Jennifer Morgan, executive director of Greenpeace International. As always, you'll be hearing from Young Voices, our resident psychotherapist, and me, your host, Clover Hogan. See you there. How did today's episode make you feel? Let us know by heading over to Force of Nature's Instagram at forceofnature.xyz and dropping us a comment or DM. We've also partnered with Colomb over on atlas.movement to bring you some pretty amazing content. Be sure to head over to the gram and join the conversation. As a reminder, if you're struggling with your mental health in the face of the climate crisis or feeling particularly overwhelmed by your eco-anxiety, you can find a whole host of resources to support you at forceofnature.xyz forward slash podcast. The Force of Nature podcast is brought to you by Force of Nature and the awesome production team at One Fine Play.